This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. It's 1896, Chicago, site of endless labor unrest, stockyards as far as the eye can see, and the Democratic National Convention. Anyone who is anyone is there, including William Jennings Bryan. He's a young man, a former member of the House of Representatives of the United States. The Democrats needed to find someone to run against William McKinley. But first, they had to set up their platform, choose what their whole campaign was going to be about. Party platforms are really important now. You know, they're not very important anymore. But they paid a lot of attention in the 1890s. And the platforms were published, you know, all over the place in newspapers and magazines. People said they would they would stand on the platform. That is historian and author Michael Kazin, who wrote a book about William Jennings Bryan called A Godly Hero. He teaches at Georgetown University. As part of the debate on the floor of the convention in Chicago, He gives this very long 45-minute speech. Considered by some to be the greatest convention speech in United States history. It's called The Cross of Gold, Brian's greatest hit. As soon as they heard it, the crowd erupted in applause. They carried him on their shoulders around the room. Multiple bands played at the same time. The room went nuts. And why? What was the issue he discussed? Was it women's rights, segregation, war, poverty, or landing on the moon? No, none of those things. It was the gold standard. Specifically, whether or not to add silver into the mix. To take the giant pool of money in the United States and make it even larger. This was more than just monetary policy. For Brian, this was his faith in God acted out in the public square, helping real people. Now, can you imagine people going crazy after a speech on monetary policy? To us, it seems a little quaint. But this is a battle that we keep coming back to today. In the age of cryptocurrencies, what is money? How does it impact different classes and races, and who controls it? Should it be controlled? Can we, just by changing how much or how little exists in the world, bring the economy to its knees? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. The gold standard. I know, what does this have to do with everything else we've discussed so far this season? Premillennialism, postmillennialism, evangelicals, the social gospel, and Christianity. Well, we'll get there. But first, I had the chance to speak to one of my radio heroes. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm the author of the book Money, the true story of a made-up thing, and I'm also one of the hosts of the Planet Money podcast. This was not just a great interview, but truly one of the best conversations I've had in years. We're going to talk about economic depressions, huge moves in politics, and work our way back to William Jennings Bryan and the Cross of Gold speech. But first, we need to understand one really crucial thing. Yeah, we'll start off with the easy, gigantic question, what is money? What is money? I I feel like I should have that answer ready right now (laughs) after all these interviews. Uh, Money is what you use to buy stuff. For a long time, the United States and much of the Western world was on the gold standard. You know, we say something is the gold standard. You know, that's the gold standard of tacos or something. It's like, well, what what does that even mean? What does it mean to be on the gold standard? Yes. Well, since you mentioned the the sort of uh, metaphor, right, the gold standard of tacos, I should say as an aside – I feel like that is actually a terrible metaphor, right? Like we say too. the gold standard of tacos, it means the best tacos. It should not mean that, right? When when you really learn the story of the gold standard, you realize the gold standard of tacos is like the tacos that caused the Great Depression. Uh, but, <laughs> I would I would watch that movie for sure. I, I never had a taco that bad. Taco, My taco experience has been very good. The gold standard is so important that it was a contributing factor to the Great Depression. Seriously, what does it mean to be on the gold standard? So the gold standard. If the United States, for example, is on the gold standard, what it means is the U.S. government is promising that you can trade a dollar for a fixed amount of gold year in and year out. It means the value of the dollar is defined as a certain amount of gold. In the case of the United States, one ounce of gold equaled $20.67 in paper and coins. In other words, if I walk into a bank and say 1870 and plunk down $20.67, I get one actual physical ounce of gold. The same was true for 1880, 1890, 1900, 1920. $20.67 got you one ounce of gold. For most of the time there was paper money, the the sort of meaning of paper money to people was that it was like a claim check, right? The paper wasn't the valuable thing. What, What it was was a claim check for gold or silver or both, right? So if you were to change the amount of gold you could get for a dollar, it would be like changing how much 
a gallon is, right? It would be like you'd go to the gas station and they'd be like, oh, actually, a gallon today is a little less. You'd be like, no, that's not what a gallon means. The definition of a gallon is a certain amount of gas. It was important that the amount of paper and coins always represented the same amount of gold. In the early 1800s, most of the big economies in the world were on different currencies. France was on the franc, England the pound, the US on the dollar. And each of them were backed by different amounts of precious metals, silver or gold. If Spain decided that this month their currency was going to be backed by a brick of gold, they could change it next month to be a little less, or a lot less. They were not locked into one fixed amount, which must have been really confusing if you did business internationally. Not only did you have to do the conversion of how many dollars equals this many francs, you also had to understand that the dollar was worth a different amount of gold than the franc, and it could fluctuate from one day to the next. So Britain decides to simplify this. It goes on the gold standard, not just backing its money with gold, but setting a fixed amount of gold for a fixed amount of paper money. It would not change. Simple. And other countries who wanted to do business with Britain followed suit. Now it was much easier to do trade across boundaries because we always knew how much gold another currency could get us. It never changed. As it happened in the 19th century, when everybody was going onto the gold standard, it was also this, this great era of globalization, you know, kind of analogous to the one that we went through, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century of things being made all over the world, of capital flows, you know, investment moving from one country to another. And the fact that all the investors and buyers and sellers in all the different countries knew that the relative values of the currencies were going to stay the same and that they were all redeemable for gold made it easier, made it work better. In a time when people did calculations on paper and transactions were relatively simple, this system made a lot of sense. Well, let's see. Gold and silver are, are basically money. This was a world where gold and silver were basically money. And so people thought, well, if we want our country to get rich, let's get a lot of gold and silver from around the world and pile it up and then we'll be rich. And the way you do that is basically you run a trade surplus. You sell more stuff to the rest of the world. They send you their gold and silver and you buy less stuff from the rest of the world. So you don't have to send that gold and silver back to other countries, right? Uh, that was the basic economic idea when Hume came along. That is David Hume. He was an 18th century skeptic in a time when it was unheard of to be an atheist, a philosopher and historian. He also had this kind of simple idea about global wealth. Say there's twice as much silver overnight, like poof, silver doubles. Like yesterday, the country had 1,000 ounces of gold, and today we have 2,000. What'll happen? It doesn't mean everybody's suddenly rich. What it means is each piece of silver buys less. Prices go up. If you've got too much gold, it becomes less valuable because there's lots of it. It's not rare. If the streets are made of gold, the trash cans, buildings, it's no longer that valuable because it's everywhere. But if you've got, say, one lump of gold in the whole country, it's super rare. Everyone wants it, and its value goes up. 
what happens is prices go up. More money stuff, more silver in Hume's model means prices go up. So suddenly you can't buy twice as much stuff. That silver buys you less stuff. Here's something that is really going to help you understand the gold standard. Don't zone out for this part. The value of gold and the cost of stuff have an inverse relationship. In other words, when the value of gold goes up, the cost of goods goes down. It becomes cheaper to buy things. When gold is super valuable, t-shirts, cars, food, everything becomes cheaper. At the same time, when the value of gold goes down, the cost of everything we buy goes up. They have an inverse relationship. When one is on the rise, the other falls. So if one country gets a ton of silver or gold, it's not as rare anymore. It's less valuable because there's a lot of it which means that it loses some of its buying power, and prices go up. It takes more money to buy, say, a TV than it did the night before. Hume had this idea of how that plays out in global markets. So the prices have gone up in your country, but they haven't gone up in other countries, right? Uh, Because they don't have twice as much silver as they used to. So now, instead of buying whatever, corn, domestically, People will go to the other country where they don't have twice as much silver and start buying their corn from there because it's still cheaper there. All that silver that just piled up in your country, it's going to flow back out again. You're you're not going to wind up with more silver. It's just going to flow back like water, right? Hume's metaphor was like, it's just like water. Trying to pile up silver in one country, it's like trying to pile up water on one end of the ocean. It's just going to flow back. And so what you need to focus on, he said, is not how much silver and gold do you have. What you need to focus on is like making stuff, right? You want the people who are growing corn and, you know, working in factories to be good at making stuff. Because if they can make stuff more efficiently or more cheaply, that's how you get richer, right? Not by piling up gold or silver. The gold or silver is just going to flow back out. That sounds really good, but there is a real problem with that assumption. So we think, oh, falling prices, fantastic. But there is one group of people, and it is a large group of people, it includes me, includes lots of people, for whom falling prices are really bad. And that is people who are in debt. Not just people with like credit card bills or payday loans. I mean, certainly them, but also those of us with mortgages, car payments, and student loans. Responsible people who went to the bank and got a loan for a reasonable investment. Them too. Deflation, when the cost of goods goes down, is bad for them. Jacob and I worked out a way to explain this to you in a more tangible way. And I tried it out on my small group. Can I have one volunteer? Would anybody be willing to volunteer? It's really simple. Would you? Oh my goodness, this, this is wonderful. Okay, now that we've got a volunteer, Hannah, we'll take this deflation thing out for a spin. You're in the business of selling something, selling anything. I don't know, what do you want to sell? Uh, let's go back to tacos. Oh, perfect. Okay, you have a taco truck. So tell me about your truck. Can you just describe what would it look like? So it would actually be like a a school bus, but I would convert it into a taco truck that would sell like really good tacos out of like the the back door that swings open, like the emergency door. Yeah. You take out a loan, you got your taco truck, 
you pay, oh, I don't know, 500 bucks a month is your is your note on your taco truck. It's a nice truck. And in order to pay, you have to sell, I don't know, 200 tacos, right? That's a lot of tacos. Let's recap those numbers. How many tacos would you have to sell at $2.50 to pay a $500 bill? Anybody? $500 alone. 200 tacos, right? Okay. (laughs) I'll be her first customer. I've got $2.50 right here. I'm going to give this to you. Okay. Money sounds. And I'm going to take a taco. Pretty simple. A basic transaction of goods for money. She's got her $2.50, and I've got one delicious taco. Let's make this thing a little more complicated. Now we add deflation. Prices are falling. People's wages are falling. So to sort of stay with things, you know, keep up with the world, you have to cut your taco prices to $1. So let's say the value of gold goes up, which means the cost of goods around you is going down. You're going to start cutting your prices because things are cheaper. The lettuce is cheaper. The meat is cheaper. What else do we have in that? There's some cheese in here, onions, a tortilla. Some beans, beans. some beans. All that stuff's going to get cheaper over time. So to compete with all of your competitors in this room, you have to sell your tacos for less. So let's say you make make it a dollar per taco. So here, I'm going to give you a dollar, and you're going to give me a taco. So now that uh, you remember you have a $500 loan payment each month, so how many tacos do you have to sell? I have to sell 500 tacos. Right. To pay that $500 a month payment, you now have to sell 500 tacos a month, right? You have to sell lots more tacos uh, to make the same payment, right? So you are worse off. The amount you have to work, the number of tacos you have to sell to make the same payment has gone up. Because the value of gold went up, things got much worse for Hannah. She had to work a lot harder just to get by. Make sense? If you owe money, deflation is really bad for you. Because the amount of your loan stays the same, but the amount of work you have to do in order to pay off your loan goes up. You have to sell more tacos to pay for your truck. David Hume's model, the whole metaphor of the wealth of countries being like water going back to the ocean, overlooks this simple reality. Real people are hurt by this boom-and-bust cycle. So what does this have to do with the gold standard and William Jennings Bryan? Well, in the 1800s, the value of gold kept going up and up and up, meaning that the value of stuff went down year after year. In particular, it's really bad for farmers. Farmers are the sort of big, you know, class of people who tend to be in debt. And so you get this whole political movement around money. And the new sort of more more sticky rallying cry becomes, let's bring back silver. The U.S. was on a mixture of silver and gold earlier in its history, but switched to just gold after Britain did. The idea that people like William Jennings Bryan had was, let's bring back silver. That means there is now more specie in the treasury, making it less valuable, and prices will go up. The stuff that is behind our money will become less rare and less valuable. 
Hopefully, that means farmers can sell their goods for higher prices and pay back their loans faster. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it too much. There are still banks making loans, and that can add to the money supply. But, you know, people who like the gold standard like the fact that it limits the amount of money it can create, right? That is sort of the purpose of it from a certain point of view, is the gold standard constrains the government's ability to create money. And yeah, there is this simple physical fact that if you add silver into the mix, that means more money. And when there's more actual money floating around, that tends to push up prices, at least historically it did so. That link has sort of broken in modern times, but historically the link was pretty clear. Which brings us all the way back to where we began this episode, 1896, Chicago, the Democratic National Convention. William Jennings Bryan is concerned about farmers who can't pay back their loans. He's a post-millennialist Christian. If you remember, that means he believes that good governance can make the world a better place. He uses religious language to talk about how governing well means adding silver into the mix. He gets on stage and delivers the slam-dunk speech of his life, the cross of gold. It's a good speech. It's a really good speech. (laughs) And like, you know, of course, I, having written a book about money, I'm like super thrilled that the most famous, you know, presidential nominating convention speech ever is about monetary policy. Like, right. great. It's a shame there are no recordings of the original speech. I, I guess there are some of him after the fact, after, you know, recording devices got better. Yes. Well, I mean, so one of the amazing things about William Jennings Bryan is, you know, he was famous as an orator. Uh, orator or orator? I don't know. I don't know. Orator. Let's go with orator. It sounds better. There were no microphones. So he would give these speeches to thousands of people with just his voice. There's this anecdote about his wife where like one day she was sitting in a hotel room and could hear her husband perfectly and he was giving a speech three blocks away, right? The man could project. I like to think of him as an opera singer trying to reach the back of the room with his words. And you know, this is the era, by the way, when they didn't have uh, primaries the way we have them now. You know, now the political convention is basically just an ad, right? At that time, it was like a functional event where they're going there to decide who's their, who's going to be their candidate. And I believe that it was unclear at the beginning of this convention. It was. Although, yeah. yeah. You, you know, I'm sure you know all of the non-gold standard stuff about Brian better than I do. <laughs> Which is why Jacob should have me on Planet Money, right? No pressure, Jacob. But I would definitely die a happy man. Anyhow, Brian is handsome, strong, and a gifted orator. A lawyer turned politician turned representative from Nebraska. So should I not even say that he's young? Will everybody already know he's 36, like super young for a presidential candidate, right? He's on stage, a young man, part politician, part preacher. His recent career is marked by this anti-gold standard stance, which Jacob says today would be like being anti-1%. He's positioned himself as the champion of the underdog, the working farmer. He makes this argument that like, look, when you say that being pro-gold standards, being pro-business, you're just defining business wrong. Here, I'm just going to quote a little bit of the speech. He says, will you come before us and tell us that we shall disturb your business interests, meaning if we get rid of the gold standard, that we shall disturb your business interests. We reply that you have disturbed our business interests. 
you know, he says like, he says basically, you have made too limited in its application the definition of a businessman. Businessmen aren't just people who work in, you know, fancy offices in New York City. The man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. The farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day, uh, dot, 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 is as much a businessman as the man who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain, right? So he's sort of redefining the terms here to, to kind of flip the idea. And then he's like, okay, let's let's do this. Like, and it's just we're we're taking the fight to them. He says, we beg no longer, we entreat no more, we petition no more, we defy them. You know, he's like, if they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we shall fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world. He says, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. He steps back and puts his arms out like, you know, he's talking about being crucified and it's sort of like as if he's on the cross and he just stands there. And then the crowd just goes wild. They just, you know, like bands start playing and people are standing up on their chairs and banging on their chairs. And basically at that moment, you know, they're parading him around the room and he is, you know, basically then becomes the Democratic nominee for president and makes his whole case to be the president on getting out of the gold standard, bringing back silver. This speech is really important in our long story about the rise of fundamentalism because it shows us a couple of really important things. First, Brian's stance where he wanted silver added into the currency. That was to help people in debt. Brian, as we said in earlier episodes, subscribed to what is called the social gospel. That movement that called for people to live their lives in service to others. Bimetallism was the social gospel in monetary policy. Use money itself to help the poor. Reframe business not just as for those in finance and in offices, but also those in fields feeding the country. They are business people too. Second, this stance demonstrated the post-millennialist goal to make the world a better place, even using government tools to do so. It is an optimistic view, especially when you get into the speech. This is a pivotal moment in our story this season. This is where Brian goes from being a popular speaker and a congressman to a full-blown celebrity, a voice for common people a populist. This talk of metal-backed money may seem like an abstract concept, but there are people even today who advocate bringing back the gold standard, mostly conservatives and libertarians, former President Donald Trump, Ron Paul, and Ted Cruz. There have even been attempts at passing bills in Congress, though none of them have been successful. Radio personalities to preachers want to return to gold. The problems are multiple. We covered one of them today, but there are others. However, this is a season about fundamentalism, not really about economics, though I love economics. So I'll give you the option of diving deeper. For patrons of the show, you'll get to hear about Irving Fisher and his big revelation. It's not enough to watch the value of gold when you're on the gold standard, because, you know, it's fixed. You have to look at the cost of everything else. 
That episode's going to be on Patreon for those who give to the show. And next week, right here on the feed, Jacob and I will examine how the gold standard took the Great Depression and made it much, much worse. But back to Brian, the gold standard, and our march towards fundamentalism. It turns out bimetallism wasn't in vogue for long. Spoiler alert, Brian never won the presidency. We never went back to bimetallism. And the supply of gold soon exploded from something Brian couldn't foresee. The gold rush. When you're on the gold standard, how much money there is in the world is in large part driven by how much gold there is, right? And when people are pulling more gold out of the ground, that means there's suddenly more money in the world. When there's more money in the world, prices start to go back up, right? There's a little bit of inflation because now there's more money. And so it's weird. It's like your monetary policy is being determined by like people rushing off to Alaska, to Canada, whatever, to try and pull gold out of the ground. Also in South Africa, there was a gold rush around this time. And around the turn of the 20th century, people start pulling more gold out of the ground. And that ends this decades-long period of uh, when prices tended to fall and prices start to go back up. And that kind of makes everybody chill out about the gold standard, basically, because it is no longer sort of oppressively deflationary for people who are in debt. Brian's pet issue wasn't long for this world. But this speech made William Jennings Bryan a household name. Without it, there might not have been a Scopes monkey trial. He was popular before this, but nothing like what he'd become. It's also a high point for the social gospel. This was 1896, and American Christians were really excited by the notion that we could usher in the millennium, we could bring back the Messiah, if we could just prepare the way. Do good deeds, look out for the less fortunate. Bimetallism is the social gospel writ large. Use monetary policy to help those saddled with debt. It's all very exciting and very positive. But we know that post-millennialism and this positive view of history will not be popular for much longer. I mean, do you know any post-millennialist today? I don't think I do. The pre-millennialist movement was already turning people against this upward trajectory of history. They saw in the Bible a downward slide into chaos. Fundamentalism was a reaction to ideas like bimetallism, insisting that the world wasn't getting better, but worse. They'd see stuff like this as creeping modernism, or worse, government control that would eventually lead to the mark of the beast. The modern republican and libertarian movement to bring back the gold standard, as we'll see, is super short-sighted. It's heavy on feelings of nostalgia for the old days, a sense that there is something behind this paper and ink, but it overlooks the impact on others. Is basing money on gold loving our neighbors? Or, as we said earlier, is the gold standard the equivalent of a taco that brings down the entire economy? I'll have that story for you next week. Special thanks this week to the fantastic Jacob Goldstein. His book is Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, and it is truly great. 
He was co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast when we recorded this, but he's now executive producer of Pushkin Industries and the host of the show, What's Your Problem?, where he talks with business leaders to understand the challenges in their industry. We also heard from Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero, which is a biography of William Jennings Bryan, and his new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. This show is listener-supported. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month, and you'll get access to bonus episodes, patron-only conversations, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff including more audio with Jacob that I could not fit into this episode. You can totally hear me geek out. Your gift makes this show possible. Visit patreon.com slash truthspodcast to learn more. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. While you're there, leave a rating and review. It helps people discover the show. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. I'm Chris Starin, and this is truce.